a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored a topic that strikes fear into most of us, cancer. We took a deep dive into the ways people prevent, treat, recover and live with what some now believe is a chronic condition. We spoke first to Asha Packman, blood cancer survivor, founder of the Fifth Direction Wellness Studio in St Kilda and chair of Meditation Australia. He shared his incredible story and series of life events which led to being diagnosed. He then went on to talk about the remarkable ways he's managed to stay well since. We were then joined by Professor Eva Segalov, oncology specialist, global cancer expert, researcher and lecturer from Monash Health. Eva provided an alternative perspective as someone who has been immersed for decades in cancer care and research. She gave a first-hand view on where the future of care is going. Our first guest was Asha Packman. Asha spent nearly two decades as a corporate executive before entering the world of wellness. As the co-founder of The Fifth Direction, Asha has taught and led group practices that incorporate mindful movement, Wim Hof, meditation and much more. He was also the first person to bring the science and method of heart math to Australia. Asha, you grew up in Melbourne and spent 20 years as a senior communications exec. You've done a bunch of, I guess, what many people would consider very glamorous things in your professional life. You worked for Sony and Ogilvy PR and AOL and um, everything was going swimmingly when a series of life events hit. Now, we understand one of them was being diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer. I'd like to ask you to take us back to the time when you were diagnosed with cancer. Can you tell us a bit about what happened and what was going on for you? Sure, I can, and thanks for the introduction, mate. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Yeah, look, that was back towards the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. Um, I knew I wasn't feeling all that well. I mean, I was starting to... I was was feeling tired a lot, and I just had that that feeling that something was up, you know? Um, Maybe many of us have been there in the past, but I also had a lot of external stuff going on as well. I just lost my mother, for example, um... And I had a few life changes in terms of moving back to Australia from overseas and um, different things. So I, maybe it's a typical guy thing, but I kind of, you know, put it down to just stress and, and didn't really look at it too much. But the symptoms didn't go away and I eventually went to a GP and had some blood tests run. And um, initially I was assured that everything was okay and that, I, that it was kind of what was going on in my life and I just needed to kind of take a break, so to speak. But there was a couple of blood markers that kept popping up on my tests. I had these tests run a number of times. And in the end, I kind of took matters into my own hands. So I actually asked my GP to refer me to a a haematologist, oncologist, just to have a look at a bit of a deeper dive into my bloods. And he was a bit resistant at first, but I kind of pushed the point and eventually went and saw a specialist. And after some back and forth with her, she uncovered 
the blood cancer. So your GP was kind of, you're fine, you're fine, mate. Yeah, pretty much, which is, is not an uncommon story, particularly in, with a rare situation like mine. Um, you know, the, bloods, the blood markers that we were looking at could have an, a number of benign reasons attached to them as to why they were elevated. So it was far from a black and white thing. So I guess it was just a matter of taking things into my own hands and and just wanting to find out a little bit more. But really based on the intuition, I could just, it just felt, I just knew innately that something was wrong in, I guess, a little bit more serious than what I was being told, I suppose. And so how long between your GP and this specialist, and when you got to the specialist, what exactly happened from there? I can't remember the exact time frame, but once I got there, she looked at the my blood markers and, and my platelets had been high for like numerous blood tests in a row, um, and they were at a level that she thought was significant. So she immediately kind of started looking into further testing. And wow, I went, I went through a whole series of, of tests. So, um, so what happened from there? Like, how did how did the C word emerge from all of this? One particular test was was for a, a gene mutation called JAK2, and I was under the impression that because a JAK2 mutation is a very rare thing, that it was probably just a test that they'd do just to kind of tick the box, and that would be the end of that. And um, she invited me in to see her to make an appointment with her and come in, and she told me that my JAK2 test was positive, which meant that it was a very clear indicator of what I had. You're sort of in the hot seat with the, I presume, haematologist or the hemato-oncologist and they've gone, right, you're Jack 2 positive. Um, where to from there? It's a really interesting one because it's so rare. A, a haematologist probably doesn't see an awful lot of MPNs in the course of their career. Um, I'm lucky in that my haematologist is very well versed in MPNs, so that's good. So, you know, but the original discussion, I think anyone who's been diagnosed with a cancer, you don't hear much. Um, you're not really listening very well at that point. It's just someone in a white coat across the other side of the table going blah, 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 and your head's kind of and then spinning. Cancer. Uh, yeah. But the interesting thing about, um, can I tell you a little story about the word yeah, cancer when it comes to MPNs? It. Because when I first got diagnosed with an MPN, it was actually not classified as a cancer. It was classified as a um, a blood disorder, yeah. Okay. And um, which you know, it's still the same thing. And for me, you know, a word doesn't mean very much. But I think we all understand the energy of the word cancer. And um, a couple of years later, um, the World Health Organization decided to change the classification of MPNs to become a cancer. And it was really interesting as to what happened. Kind of overnight, people kind of felt like they woke up with cancer and they didn't have it the day before. Whereas, and that was caused some anxiety within certain groups, yeah? And for me, it's it was, well, I can't really see the difference. It's, you can call it what you want, but it just proved to me the stigma and the energy around the word cancer because it's the same, yeah, you're no different from how you were yesterday, but suddenly because we've decided to change a word, you feel like you've got something horrible. Looping back to your predicament, you're diagnosed with what becomes cancer. And I'm curious to know how you got from that diagnosis to many of the things you're engaging in now. Like, what was what was that journey? How did you find your current path? There's probably a missing piece of the puzzle here because for me, I, I was also suffering from anxiety and depression. It's something that I've carried with me since I was a young kid. So for me, 
managing that cancer diagnosis had a lot to do with my state of mind as well. And it was already, you know, in a reasonably precarious place. Over the previous few years leading up to my cancer diagnosis, I'd lost my younger sister, I'd lost my mum. And as I said, I'd always had this little dark passenger on my shoulder of anxiety and depression, which I carried all the way through my corporate life. It was there. I was a high-functioning yeah. um, depressive at that time, sort of dipping in and out of bouts of various severity. So for me, the, the diagnosis of cancer was probably more of a mental battle than anything else because I felt like, particularly after having just lost my sister and my mum and then getting the cancer diagnosis, that it was really such a heavy weight. And it was kind of the straw which broke the camel's back in, in a little way. Um, a couple of weeks after being diagnosed with cancer, I found myself in the Melbourne Clinic being yeah. treated for depression. And, you know, while some might look at all the things that happened in the lead up to that as well, you know, it's, it's no wonder you had a breakdown. Yeah. But as I said, this is kind of 25 or 30 years of build up to that. And people often ask me, which has been the more difficult journey, the anxiety and depression or the cancer? And I'd probably say the anxiety and depression, to be honest. So for me, it was looking at that side of things and, and two weeks in the Melbourne Clinic and then coming out of there and trying to figure out strategies for myself to kind of get my head in the, in the game, in the right place. And that led me to meditation. So that was kind of the first step. Whenever people, I think, hear the word cancer, they're like, well, that's life-threatening. Mm. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is that right next to that was the equally as life-threatening anxiety and depression. How did you, did you try and tackle these as a whole or how do you find your way through that haze? Um, I mean, the cancer took a back seat at that point because in terms of what was on top of the list of being life-threatening at that stage was my anxiety and depression. And, you know, being diagnosed with an MPN is not, it's a journey. It's not something that needs to be looked, you know, there's nothing that critical intervention which needed to happen straight away. So I was able to kind of focus on the anxiety and depression at first, which was, which was the most more life-threatening of those two situations at that stage. But having said that, the psychiatrist that was treating me at the Melbourne Clinic was in touch with my hematologist. So they were figuring stuff out together. Of all the things you've engaged in, and I've, I've known you as a heart math coach and a Wim Hof instructor, out of absolutely everything that's in the, the toy box of options from, you know, chemo, stem cells, what have you found most helpful? I don't think there's any one particular thing in the toy box which I'd say this is the thing. Okay. Um, but what I would say is it's definitely a large part around how you approach these things, so mindset, you know, and... Um, you know, coming at it from a place of love and not fear is probably the biggest thing. And if you look at all the different things that I've looked at for doing to, to help myself, underlying all of that is why and how I'm going into that approach. You know, if you take the Wim Hof method, for example, you know, I'm, I'm approaching that not through fear, but through embracing it and through love and through enjoying, you know, the connection back to nature and enjoying the process and really seeing any benefits to my cancer or, or my state of mind as a positive side effect, you know. Asha, tell us about the Wim Hof method. Yeah. What is it? Um, <laughs> well, Wim Hof is a Dutch guy with a bunch of world records for cold exposure and over the course of what he's done, he's finding that it's helping a lot of people with a lot of chronic illnesses and really at the end of the day it comes down to breathing, meditation and cold exposure. Wim came into my life a little later in the piece. I'd always 
I sort of heard a bit about this crazy Dutchman who'd been doing these crazy things, but I couldn't quite see how it fitted into my journey. But it was in watching a documentary on him one evening when I sort of started to think that it might be worth having a look at. So I started doing his breathing and did his course and just found the firstly that it, it alleviated a lot of my little niggling symptoms, fatigue and night sweats and, and itching skin and bone pain. And, and yep. I just found when I started this process that a lot of these symptoms lessened and in some cases went away. Even in the my blood tests, I started to notice, particularly some of the markers around inflammation, they started to decrease. So whilst it wasn't attacking you know, it's not, it's not a cure for cancer in my case, but it certainly helps with symptom burden. But it's, it's kind of the three things I think together, like doing the breathing, doing the meditation and, and the, the gradual cold exposure together, which seems to have a pretty big impact. And now that I've become an instructor and I'm sharing this method with other people, particularly people with other chronic illnesses like autoimmune and stuff like that, that a lot of people are beginning to see the, the benefits. So Asha, I think many people may have a hunch about what meditation is, but there are also many of us who are probably a little bit intimidated by the concept. How did you begin meditating and how does one actually do it effectively? (laughs) There's lots of stuff in that question. Um, I started long before my diagnosis. I, I began actually looking at my anxiety and depression as a way to kind of see if I could make a difference for myself there. So it was it was basic kind of mindfulness stuff. Back in the day, I went and did a couple of short courses and kind of tried to introduce a meditation practice into my life. And and that was that was good. It definitely had some benefits. It wasn't completely new to me um, when I kind of really looked at it much more seriously after getting the, the cancer diagnosis. The thing which popped up immediately for me was heart math. Can you tell people what is heart math? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's about reconnecting to your heart. Most of us, you know, if I ask you, May, how do you perceive the world? You probably say something about your head or your mind, right? And I think if you asked our ancestors, they'd point at the centre of their chest. And I think we've largely lost this kind of heart consciousness, this way of um, leading with your heart when it comes to how we live our lives and we're too caught up in our heads. And very basically, heart math is about making that all-important eight-inch journey, which is maybe the longest journey anyone ever makes in their life, and that is from their head down into their heart. Um, And once you start to understand that that's how we're perceiving our experience through our heart, and that the heart's, electrically speaking, the most powerful organ in our body, um, to reframe how you show up. What do you mean, electrically speaking? Well, we're made of energy, right? So I think each of our organs have electromagnetic fields of different intensity um, based on the number of signals that they put out and the heart is the organ which gives out the most number of signals for example the heart sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart so it's definitely from that point of view the most powerful organ in our body when you look back through i guess the arc of the years that have passed since the diagnosis do you have a story around what might have caused your cancer in the first place i do but again i kind of preface this by saying this is just me this is the way I feel about my own journey Um, so kind of seeing your disease or your or the cancer as something which is a result of the way you've lived your life and the things that have happened to you is kind of interesting Um, I mean still as I said in the beginning an MPN is generally a gene mutation which is caused by an environmental trigger so you could just say that's just 
unlucky. But at the same time, I was also saying you sort of got to be susceptible to that as well. And for me, if, if you look at platelets in the body, they're kind of a protective measure. You know, when you cut yourself, all the platelets yeah. run to the site and they clot the blood and they, they help you to, to heal. So they're kind of protecting the, the broken skin in a way. And for me, my life, a lot of my life, particularly as, as a young boy, has been around um, almost being overprotective in certain ways, particularly around my sister and my mum. So I imagine that if that's the storyline which has been played from my mind to my body for years and years and years about protection, overprotection, you know, too much protection um, and, and going over the top with that, then I guess you could make the case that, you know, when my genes switched like that, it was a case of my body listening to that mind narrative which had been going on for years and years, which is about too much protection. So the body just did its job. But again, I see it as that narrative caused the susceptibility and then, you know, somewhere along the line I've walked into the environmental trigger. So I don't think it's as simple as A causes B sort of thing. Have you ever thought about going down the path of chemotherapy or any such called traditional treatments? Well, here's where I probably differ from other people with cancer is that, you know, I wouldn't wish an MPN on anyone, but if you put your hand into a bucket of cancers and pulled out an MPN, you'd probably, you know, one had to come out, you'd probably consider yourself reasonably lucky. Um, so, so far in my journey with cancer, the idea of having to take uh, a chemo-style drug hasn't um, really raised its head just yet. It, it's a progressive cancer, so, you know, that may well be the case down the track. And also, as, as I age, my profile and my risk profile changes as well. So even if my bloodlines don't change that much, I'll hit a certain age where my haematologist will look at me and go, I think it's about time just based on my risk profile. So that decision that is, is coming in the future, there's no yeah. doubt about it. So I'll need to think about it at some point. What do you mean by risk? Just for everyone listening, risk of further mutation, risk of... Um, all those, you, you are definitely at risk of further mutation. That's something, but the... the the chemo is more about stabilising the blood counts because, you know, walking around with very elevated um, platelets, for example, and there are other bloodlines which can get impacted as well, but just looking at platelets for a second puts you at a very high risk for a blood clot, Yeah. you know, a stroke or, or, or an aneurysm or something like that. And so if I was to have one, even a minor one, that conversation around chemical intervention would become very prevalent almost immediately. So what I'm hearing you saying is... Your strategy at the moment is very much grounded in all of these lifestyle and behavioural interventions that you've self-designed and, I guess, curate on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. For the moment, yeah. Um, and, you know, the question is obviously there. It's like, would I use other interventions in the future if I had to? And the question is... I don't know yet. Um, I'll see how I, I'll see what's happening for me at that particular stage. I'm certainly not against um, anything. You know, I keep a very open mind. I, 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 I don't like certainty. I think um, life is uncertain, and I think being too rigid in your beliefs um, prevents learning. You know, I think it's also worth pointing out that this cancer diagnosis has kind of been a little bit of a blessing for me in some respects too. It's Ooh. like, yeah, and that's a, that's a really hard thing f- to hear and it took me a while to kind of get to grips with that. But it, it forced me to deeply look at myself. And, you know, if I look at my anxiety and depression, like the, the, after the initial diagnosis, the curve has generally been that that's gotten better because I've been forced to face my own mortality. And um, 
it's it it has it's taught me so much like i say like you know it's been a great teacher and i think you'll find that i'm not the only person that you you're going to hear say that um it really does every day it it teaches me so much about myself and also it's opened doors that would previously have not been opened i mean if it wasn't for that i'd still be working in a corporate job i'd imagine and and doing things that were keeping me unhappy and now as a result of this i kind of feel like i'm living the life that i was supposed to live i feel like i'm on my purpose like i love what i do now and i can't say that about my life pre cancer like when i sat across the table and a lady in a white coat told me that i had a progressive incurable cancer at, the, at it seemed like a bad day but if i look back now i i i, I can't say that i just i can't it's not true so that's heavy go. stuff that is very very that is a big our heart to share with us and one which I'm going to, um, you know, reflect on myself because to say that you're glad you had cancer is, that's quite a, that's quite a big statement. Well, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm glad that I had cancer, I, I, but I see it as a great teacher and I see that it's brought a lot of blessings into my life, um, which is different. You know, I see it as an experience which has enabled me to grow and learn and 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 that as a result of that, things that have made me happy have occurred. Yeah, for many people, there would be a sense of that's an amazing place to get to in the face of something which, for most of us, would weigh very heavily, mm. just almost be crippling in some regards. Yeah, and, and initially it was for me. Yeah. So it's taken me years and years to get to this point. But I think, you know, through meditation and other... Like, I'm all about kind of figuring out the meaning of my existence these days and kind of my meditation's taken on another kind of aspect to it. It's sort of like I'm fascinated with the idea of, of, of consciousness itself and all these other things which has kind of made themselves available to me through the practice of meditation. So what started as kind of what can I do to alleviate my anxiety and depression has kind of then become, well, it's helping with all sorts of other areas of my life and now it's become something even bigger than that which is like, what am I doing here? <laughs> it, it's funny you say that, and it reminds me of a quote by Soren Kierkegaard, which is, anxiety is the dizzying prospect of freedom. Yeah, well, I think that that's true. And these hard times in life, these things that really test us is, is when we learn the most. Thank you, Asha, for um, making the time to join us today and I guess bringing your full self to this conversation around cancer and what it means. We shall have you back. I just feel it. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Asher is of the belief that his cancer diagnosis was linked to, if not caused by, significant emotional trauma. Unsurprisingly, he has found great therapeutic benefit seeking treatments such as meditation, Wim Hof, and shamanistic practices. Still, Asher's position leaves me with a few questions about evidence. What exactly is the cost and opportunity cost of pursuing these kind of therapies? They're inexpensive to do, but for someone whose time is truly limited, is it a good investment? Now let's hear from cancer specialist, Professor Eva Segalov. Eva is a medical oncologist and director of oncology at Monash University and Monash Health. To kick things off, I wanted to ask you, is there more cancer around today or are we just living longer and we've got to die of something? Yes, there is more cancer that we know about. There is 
less death from diseases such as heart disease and stroke as treatments in those areas have got better. We have more screening, which should pick up earlier cancers that are all curable. And we're also seeing the rise of cancer as a major illness in developing countries now that there is more hygiene, basic hygiene and better treatment of infectious disease. Countries like China and India, although there's still a lot of poverty, there is obesity and Western diet, and we're seeing more cancer as well in those communities. In the cancer profession, do you have a view on are we making headway overall or are we in a delicate relationship with cancer-producing products? So actually, this, they say that this generation of Americans will be the first to die younger than their parents. So I think that... And that is all social factors and issues to do with lifestyle. I think we uh, have had enormous gains, particularly in the last five years in cancer diagnosis and treatment. Uh, And there are many patients, many people treated and cured today who would have died of their cancer in previous years. But we are doing bad things as societies uh, in terms of causing more cancer, both on an individual level, things like diet, lack of exercise, but also pollution, uh, which is a major cause of disease, again, in often in developing countries. So it is a little bit of win some, lose some. I'm curious to know, like for a newly diagnosed cancer sufferer, Is there any benefit in moving to a cleaner environment and cleaning up their diet or is it too late? So it depends on what cancer, where it is, how far it's gone. That's called its stage. And if you've had an early stage cancer, then anything you modify might reduce the chance of that cancer coming back as a secondary cancer or it may reduce your chance of getting another cancer. So we know with smoking, if you stop smoking, the risk that you'll get a a cancer goes down compared to if you continue to smoke. But in general, if you have very advanced cancer, suddenly switching to a healthy diet will probably not impact. But, for example, if you're a woman who's had an early breast cancer who's a little bit overweight or has a a, a very uh, heavy diet in uh, meat and and processed foods, you will probably reduce your risk both of that cancer coming back and of getting a future cancer. So when you're in the the trench of, I guess, the hospital or the clinic and and people walk in, do you find yourself faced with the dilemma of explaining to people the difference between early-stage cancer and late-stage cancer or cancer types and what sort of magical thinking emerges because there is a lot of stuff that people blog about, write about that is potentially very confusing. So it is incredibly complex and the first thing I try and do is to talk with the patient and their family about what they have as compared to somebody they know or uh, somebody they've heard about or a celebrity who's been diagnosed on the news uh, because there's so much information out there and it, it is very nuanced as to whether that might apply to you or not. 
So patients sometimes uh, and more and more come in with a lot of information and information is great as long as it's not fake news. It's also making sure that what the patient understands is what they actually have. A very common example is people who have a cancer that spread from where it started, let's say in the breast, to another organ, let's say to the bones. And often those people, their understanding is that they have bone cancer. And that would imply if you look up bone cancer, how to treat bone cancer, that gives you a certain uh, set of effective therapies. But actually they have breast cancer so that the breast cells have gone, the breast cancer cells have gone and they're living in the bone. And we need to treat that as breast cancer. There's a lot of information and one of the things that we're grappling with at the moment is how to talk about genetic information. And by that, I don't necessarily mean you've inherited the cancer. It's talking about what genes are in the cancer and therefore what sort of precision medicine, which is the new buzzword for how we treat people. Uh, And, you know, this is... uh, explaining it in a clear way, giving resources, not asking people to make decisions just after the initial consult, but giving time for them to go home, research it, think about it, ask questions. All of those things can help people understand. But it is a huge information overload when you're diagnosed with cancer. And at a time where you know, there's so much emotion that it's actually very hard to take much in. Yeah, totally understandable. And I think, do you feel like there's a pressure for people to make decisions like to to over-treat or to engage in more therapies than is useful? Certainly, you know, I had an uncle with pancreatic cancer and he was offered experimental treatments and trial drugs and hand on heart, at what point do we do we call it? Look, it differs from different practitioners. As you would expect, there's a very broad church of people within the profession and based on their own experience and uh, their own understanding, we try very much to have consensus but also to tailor to the patient. So generally, I think we probably over-treat people and Part of that is explaining to somebody what the likelihood is of a treatment working. So if you say to somebody, there's just a small chance, they probably would agree to have treatment. Whereas if you say a percentage, now I'm not advocating you say a percentage because A, we don't always know what that is and B, if it works in you, that's 100%. So again, It's a complex piece of information and the patient and family are the other side of the equation. They may be wanting more treatment than the doctor wants to give. They may have particular goals. I want to get to my daughter's wedding. So it's always a synthesis. Um, But I think we need to make sure people are aware of all the options, the option of not having any treatment, Uh, which doesn't mean they won't get full supportive care, pain relief, all the nutrition support, all of the issues 
uh, that go with looking after someone with cancer, even if you're not having specific treatment against the cancer. Now, on the other side, we've had some treatments working unbelievably well, particularly some of the so-called targeted treatments once we know what is wrong with the, the cancer's DNA and some of these immunotherapies. So we have patients with metastatic melanoma, so melanoma that's spread all over the body, who in the past would survive only for a number of months, who are now living three, four, five years, and many of them are cured with this new treatment. So I do think it's always reasonable to offer someone a trial if they want to keep going with treatment when we've gone through all the conventional treatment. Just so for the average punter that's listening out there who is probably, like me, twigged on the word of over-treatment, what does that actually mean? So I think we need to firstly define the aim of treatment. So if you have somebody that you can cure, you really want to give them all that treatment. You don't want to, and, and the patient usually wants that. It's when we can't cure the cancer, but we may be able to offer either you live longer or you live better, that's better quality of life, or hopefully both. And one of the issues is that that comes from putting a whole lot of people together and looking at averages. How I like to explain it is best case scenario, worst case scenario, because there is a range. I think there's no right answer, but I do think it's about how we communicate to patients the benefit of the current treatments. And we are now in a different paradigm where we have some really very effective treatments. We still don't have them for everyone and we still don't have enough indication of which particular ones are going to be highly effective in which particular patients. For anyone who hasn't had cancer in the last little while, what do you mean by we're in a new paradigm? What's the big breakthrough? I mean, we've had 23andMe just sort of come onto the market allowing mass screening in the US. What's the new hot thing in 2018, 2019 in well, I think in Australia. it's bringing through from clinical trials these two main areas. One is the so-called precision medicine or targeted treatment where we look at what has gone wrong in the cancer cell, either in the DNA or in some other characteristic. And we have a particular treatment that works really well in the people whose cancer has that particular feature, might not work at all if they don't have that feature. So if you're using something that is going to be really effective and you can pick out who it is rather than really effective in some, but I have to treat 100 people to to cover those five, then you're going to be much better ahead. And the second major advance is that we have finally learned, and we're still at the beginning of the journey, of how to harness the body's own immune system to fight the cancer. So cancers are growths in places, cells that grow where they shouldn't grow, and then they spread to places they shouldn't spread. So a breast should not be allowed to have a cancer in it, and those cells should, if they went to the bone should be recognised as imposters and chucked out. Now, why doesn't the body do that? The body will recognise when it gets a bug as an infection and make a whole response to having a bug. 
why is it that cancers can exist where they shouldn't? And that's because the cancers trick the immune system into thinking they're a normal part of the body or an acceptable part of the body. And we've always been trying to harness the immune system, for, but we just didn't really have the key. And now we have the beginning of really being able to switch on the immune system to let the body fight the cancer and say, no, cancer cells, you can't be there and you can't go and live in the bone or the lungs or the brain. We, we don't have it for all cancers and we don't have it perfectly even for the cancers that we have, but it's a big step forward. So I think... When most people think of the immune system, they probably have a very general, vague sensation about what comprises the immune system. So what do you mean when you talk about the immune system? Is it sort of blood cells? Look, it's a really good question. There's immune... The body is very, very good at maintaining its integrity. So it doesn't want bugs coming in. It doesn't want... um, Uh, things that shouldn't be there. So there is immunity all over. But generally what we're talking about are the cells that either wake up the body to fight something, so the bugles that call the army, uh, and the cells that then come to to push back and fight the bug or now fight the cancer. But we are getting better at understanding that. But even, say, in your mouth, you have a barrier so that Bugs don't go in. So that's a, that's a type of immunity as well. The immune system is complex. It's got many parts, but we're now finally working out how to wake up the bits that the cancer has sort of entranced because they should be activated. Cancer should not grow. They're not part of normal cells. You've mentioned the immune system and touched on the fact that when you go undergoing, say, chemotherapy or radiation, it's it's really quite an insult. In a, in a way, it's like a trauma in and of itself. How does the how do we do we still um, consider these as like the mainstay treatment for people with cancer? So it does depend again on the the type of cancer, where it is, how far it's spread. Surgery is still really if we've got cancer in one area and we can cut it out. That's a really Uh, a mainstay of treatment. Chemotherapy goes around the body, but more and more we're talking about anti-cancer treatment or systemic anti-cancer as we start adding immunotherapy and other classes of drugs that aren't chemotherapy by the sort of pharmacology definition. And radiotherapy is also very good, but mainly where where you've got a problem in one area. Uh, rather than all over the body. I just want to, though, pick up on the fact that some chemotherapy, some some of these treatments do cause significant impact on the immune system, but others don't. And there's a lot of myths out there. And I remember a patient some years ago saying they wanted to stop their treatment and they were doing really, really well. And I knew they weren't having too many side effects. And I said, why? And they said, because I haven't been able to kiss my granddaughter since I've been on this. And I was like, who told you that? That's, you know, most people on these treatments have normal life. People may have subtle immune problems, but they're pretty much like everyone else and can do pretty much what everybody else does for most of the time. So if I'm, you know, in off the street, I've unfortunately been diagnosed with cancer and I say, look, 
I'd like to hold back on my cancer radiotherapy. I'd like to move to Byron Bay, I'll teleconference in, and do some alternative therapies. If that was your family member, what would you say? So, look, we've been grappling with this issue of both complementary and alternate medicine, and they're a bit rubbery, but complementary is usually used to say along with the standard treatment and alternative is usually used in that the patient's not going to have standard treatment, they're going to have something else instead. And look, it really depends on what we have to offer and what we can realistically expect. So if we can cure you, then it is a real tragedy if someone says, no, I don't want treatment. But if our treatment has only a fairly low chance of working uh, and a lot of side effects, then if somebody says, I'd rather do something else. So it's all about informed consent. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. I have a very good friend of mine who is a um, blood cancer doctor, haematologist, and her little nephew had a ter- one of those terrible childhood brain cancers. Yeah. And there had just been the stories on the news about the clinic in Mexico and what a great benefit had been to an Australian child. And so uh, my friend was asked by the family, should we take our child to Mexico? So the family supported them because they really felt it was something they had to do because they had been told the alternative was that there was nothing else and the child was not going to survive. And for parents and families to have that when there is someone saying, we can Come with help me. you. Yeah. And so my friend helped them prepare a whole list of questions for when they got there. And they got to Mexico with their child and they went through all these questions. And the final question they asked them, and they said, if your treatment really works so well and can cure, why have you not made this available all over the world? Because that's what we do when we find a treatment that works. And yes, there are pharmaceutical companies who make money from selling drugs, but it is the case where the whole community that treats cancer is an academic community that publishes results, shares information, both things that help and things that don't. And interestingly, this family, when they asked that question and said, if your treatment works so well, why don't you make it available? And they said they couldn't answer that. And at that point, they didn't trust that there was anything in that treatment that actually did help. And maybe the circumstances of the child that had appeared to be helped, maybe they would have done well anyway or, you know, it's hard to know, can't comment. But they got straight back on the next plane and came back. So that's, you know, I'd say to people, if it worked, I would use it. You know, it's not a conspiracy that we've got a great treatment, but... it's in the health food shop and we're not using it. But I am very tolerant. I talk to people. We've got databases to look up to see if the treatment they want to use is going to interact with our treatment. Now, not everything's been tested, but that's one thing that can help. Do any of the alternative therapies work? Like, let's just be frank here, meditating, these coffee enemas, um, you know, alkaline darts, ketogenic darts, like... Does any of it work? So there is some evidence about meditation and better uh, control of nausea 
and some evidence about acupuncture and better control of nausea. Uh, nausea, fortunately, is not a major problem for most people. We've got very good ways of controlling it. There are some benefits for um, anxiety, and that's why these wellness centres have sprung up in cancer centres, so that we can really address issues about anxiety, nausea, those sorts of things. But uh, the the key the uh, alkalining diet is an interesting one. It's very hard to change your blood pH. You change it by a point one, and you're in intensive care. So you can make your yeah. urine go alkaline, and you can test that. That's actually good. It stops you having urine infections. But they're not changing the alkaline yeah. level of the blood. So there's uh, some misinformation there. Be careful of things that uh, cost a lot of money. Be careful of things that you haven't told your doctor. Like be upfront. You should have a good rapport uh, so that you can discuss these things and uh, bring information. We're happy to discuss information. In the end, different people do different things. But mostly we're able to help our patients uh, and uh, have an ongoing relationship and adjust things as they need to be adjusted. Eva, thank you very much for a comprehensive safari through cancer treatment. Thanks for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Thank you. Either way is the central question that cancer prompts. What makes your life meaningful? When time is more finite, we're pushed towards priorities. Both guests highlighted the gift of asking... What is truly important? Perhaps the greatest takeaway from this conversation is that this is something we should ask ourselves now, before we are sick. Some listeners might have found the content of this episode upsetting. If you need professional support, please call Lifeline 13 11 14. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.